Come, Holy Spirit, come as the wind and cleanse us. Come as the fire and purge us. Convict, convert, consecrate us, that we may become your sanctified people. Amen. The Spirit of God moved over the waters of creation, and she was with the people of Israel both as Sophia, wisdom, and as the Shekinah, the presence of God in the temple. A feminine spirit of God, she was clearly present in our first lesson from Exodus, which tells us the story of the mother of Moses. The lesson begins by setting the stage. We learn of the Hebrews who had prospered after the brothers of Joseph went down to Egypt. But then they became too strong in the eyes of Pharaoh and a concern. Hebrew midwives were instructed to kill the male babies, but the clever midwives, Shifra and Pua, told the Egyptian officials that Hebrew women were so strong that they gave birth before the midwives could get there. Then the Egyptians decreed that all boy babies were to be drowned in the Nile. Here, the unnamed mother of Moses, only known as a Levite woman who marries a man from the house of Levi, enters the story, and she devises a hopeful plan. She makes a waterproof basket and sets the baby afloat in the hope her baby will survive. And fortune is with her. Soon after, the Pharaoh's daughter came with her attendants to bathe in the the Nile and saw the floating basket and found the baby. The child's mother had sent her daughter Miriam to follow the basket, and when the Egyptian princess found it, Miriam stepped forward and offered to provide a wet nurse. And so the infant Moses was saved and adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, and his own real mother continued to nurse him. It is a story of women working for life with the help of God, despite the machinations of a government clamoring for death. The spirit of the God of Israel was at work in the midwives and in the family of Moses and in the princess who would provide him a new family. The psalm appointed for this Sunday is a psalm of rejoicing over disaster averted. It speaks of water overwhelming and traps that ensnare. The rhythms remind me of the Jewish song, Dayenu, a Hebrew word which means it would have been enough. The psalm is a hymn of praise and thanksgiving that God has saved those in danger and even gone on to foil the oppressors. It would have been enough just to be liberated. Dayenu. The psalm is written from the perspective of one for whom the world has become a very frightening and hostile place and currently... Worldwide, and specifically in Texas, there are many for whom this is true. But the psalm concludes with hope and with God's intervening help. Our epistle is from St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Some have described Paul's letter to Rome as the gospel, according to Paul. He sets forth a strong thesis claiming that we are justified by our faith and not by our works. And then Paul continues with what a life of faith looks like. He asks each of us to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. 
The Christian church did not then and does not now offer sacrifices which kill living things. Rather, we're to follow Christ and make our lives an ongoing and living sacrifice of love and honor to God. Our lives are not offered up to a God as a sacrifice to placate an angry God, but as a thank offering to a gracious God. Paul goes on and instructs us not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds as we seek to do God's will. Moral transformation means putting away some forms of behavior and replacing them with ones more fitting to our lives in Christ. We are urged to be nonconformist to the ways of the world and allow our destinies to be shaped by the Holy Spirit. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to comfort and guide us, and it is she that transforms us. Last week, after a week of national stress following the shooting in Charlotte, uh, not the shooting, the, um, uh, the woman being hit by a car in Charlottesville, we had a very different experience across the country. People traveled to specific locations all over the nation to watch the total eclipse as it traveled across the United States. There was a great community spirit and shared moments of wonder. I watched the eclipse from the Memorial Garden out here with Mother Nayan and Joe Greiner. They had made a pinhole viewer, and we looked through it, but I also had obtained two NASA glasses, and so we looked straight at the sun when the moon was directly in front. In front. The next day, in the parking lot, I saw Anne Louise, and we talked about the eclipse, and she said she had actually not watched the sun and the moon, but she had watched the hills to see how the color changed. And she said all the yellow and the gold had gradually drained from the tree line and then slowly returned. And she thought the absence of that warm yellow tone was like the absence of the Holy Spirit. And I suggested we go and see the new mural that has been painted on the side of the parish hall. And so I took her down and showed her the image of the Holy Spirit as a dove surrounded by golden yellow. And that brings us to the gospel and Jesus' words about the church. Our gospel lesson takes place at Caesarea Philippi, which is about 20 miles north on the Sea of Galilee and on the slopes of Mount Hermon. It is a town formerly known as Peneus and was an ancient Greek site of worship to the god Pan, a goat-footed, flute-playing god from whom comes our word panic. There are still ruins there from that cult. It was named Caesarea Philippi for one of Herod's sons, and to differentiate it from Caesarea, uh, Herod's resort on the Mediterranean. Last January, when I went to Israel, our pilgrimage group went to Caesarea Philippi, and it's no longer a town, but simply a site for visitors with a coffee shop and souvenirs. But it remains a place that was of great significance in the life and ministry of Jesus. It's where Jesus asked his his disciples who people thought he was, and after they answered, he asked who they thought he was. And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah the son of the living God. 
Jesus responded that Simon was blessed because only God could have revealed that to him. And then Jesus said Simon would be known as Peter and he would be the rock on which Jesus would build his church. This event is known as the confession of Peter. It's not a confession in the sense that Peter confessed his sins, but it was when he claimed and honored Jesus as his savior. This is also one of only two times in the New Testament that Jesus spoke of the church. Mostly he spoke of the kingdom of God, but in this passage he spoke of the institution through which we have come to know God. And it's abundantly clear from the Gospels that the disciples and apostles provided the continuity between Christ and the church. We are still a church with apostolic succession that goes back to Peter. It's somewhat amazing to me at times that the church, with all of its flaws and foibles, still manages to carry the golden thread of the gospel down through the centuries. It's a very idiosyncratic institution, as we all know. One of my favorite stories of the church was when a priest colleague was visiting from England. He was with his son, and the father was telling me about someone rather eccentric at a church he attended, but one he thought I would find interesting, but he couldn't recall the person's name. And so he turned to his son and said, Matthew, what was the name of that lunatic at St. Mary's Redcliffe? And his son, who was a choir boy there, paused for a long time, and finally he said, actually, there are quite a few of them. <laughs> Despite our various peculiar honors, the church continues, and it carries the treasure of the word of God. And that brings us back to St. Paul and his analogy of the church as the body, the body in Christ, the body of Christ, in which we are many members with different gifts that work together for the glory of God and the building up of the community. None of us works for ourselves alone, but by serving others, teaching, exhorting, giving aid. We are a diverse group, but members of one body, one community related as a family to one another. And it's in that community, this community, that we grow and change. We are transformed by our faith and by our community. And it is this community life, that the, in this community life, that the Holy Spirit does her work. For she is that aspect of God that is among us, between us, and within us. And the end of that process of growth and change is sanctification, whereby we actually do become a living sacrifice. Now, all of us naturally prefer to remain sinners, missing the mark and staying in our old ways. But we, like the disciples before us, have caught a glimpse of Christ, and that's why we're here. Little by little, and often through long and painful difficulties, and generally dragging our feet most of the way, we move along the path to sanctification. By sitting in church, confessing our sins, hearing the lessons, singing hymns sometimes, sharing bread and wine, we come to realize that we are forgiven, and the forgiven person becomes a forgiving person.
And slowly, as we reflect on the words and ministry of Jesus, we realize that we have been healed. And the healed person becomes a healing person. And through prayer and shared burdens, and through the love of a community, we come to finally accept that we are loved, and the loved person becomes a loving person. God does most of the work, but God works through the community of the church. We are a flawed people in a peculiar institution, but we have been entrusted with the golden thread of the word of God, and by it we are blessed and sanctified, and through it we bless the world. Amen. Amen.